You guys were here last week. You know who this is? You remember Elvis? Well, Elvis never left the building. Stayed here all week. If you were not here last week, you're wondering what on earth am I doing with a stuffed animal? <clears throat> a little boy got close to me at the end of the uh, first service and said to me, do you have that bear because you're afraid? <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> now, last week, um, we were talking about the fact that um, the problem with um, a lot of uh, Christians or the problem for a lot of Christians is the fact that they don't really know God. You know, they have created a God in their mind that it's not the real God. They create him the way that my youngest daughter created Elvis. You know, she went to a store and told them what accessories she wanted on the bear, which parts she didn't like and removed. And, and, and then she created her, her little bear. And, and that's the way that a lot of people uh, create their God. <clears throat> and we were talking about the importance of knowing the real God. Because if you're going to have a relationship with him, it has to be the real God. And the more you learn about his attributes, then you have a clear image of who God is. Okay, we, we learn uh, one of the most important attributes of God, the aseity of God, the fact that God is on himself, by himself, from himself. Everything flows from him, nothing to him. And, and thanks to that attribute, then it's easy to understand other attributes, like the fact that he's all-powerful, you know, all-knowledgeable, that, that he's everywhere, he's omnipresent. But see, what I have discovered is that when people really begin to understand what those attributes mean, you know, the moment comes when they clash against their idea of who God is. Now, you created a God that it's exactly the way I want it. He's going to do what I want, when I want it, the way I want it. And if all of a sudden you find yourself in situations where God does not respond the way that you're expecting him to, you know, when, when you learn about his attributes, to so some people, instead of helping you just get to know him better and get closer to him, it causes confusion. In some people, it causes anger. Some people abandon completely their faith because their God doesn't behave the way that they thought it was going to be. Uh, when we find in the Bible things that confuse us, you know, that they just don't go with what we think, what we need to do is wrestle with those things. We don't get angry about them. You know, we don't just skip them. You know, we don't get away from God because of it. We wrestled with them. We wrestle with God kind of the way that Jacob wrestled with God all night long until God blessed him. And today we're going to um, talk about one of those conflicts. Uh, the fact that God is sovereign, you know, that he's in control of everything, but he's also a good God, you know? And, and when we face the things that we face in daily life, we start wondering how can he be sovereign, be in control and be a good God and allow these things to happen? So we're going to talk about this subject, but let me pray for us first. Um, Father, uh, we love you and we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit, uh, specifically when we try to learn about you and we get into subjects that are so deep and some instances so painful. Uh, we need your help. So will you please guide us, speak through me today, and let your Holy Spirit just Fill our hearts and open our eyes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, the first time that I faced uh, this question, uh, it was years before I had uh, become a pastor. I was a consultant. I was a, a believer. Karina and I had been following Jesus for a certain number of years. And I was in Peru giving a series of conferences when the uh, director of the company where I was working invited me over for dinner to his house one of the nights. And, um, and I got there and there was other people that were invited, other executives of, of the same company. And the conversation for some reason turned to movies. And we started talking about a, a movie that you probably watched called Stigmata, a very intense movie. Uh, and at some point in that movie, I, I mentioned the fact that a scroll written Aramaic you know, it, it's the cause of the whole situation. And when I said Aramaic, a woman that was there who had been invited because she was also Mexican, you know, we were in Peru, immediately looked at me and said, Aramaic, the language of the Lord. You know, and it was like the cold, secret word, we're like, believer, you know, like, yeah, oh, Christians, all right, you know. And, um, but to our surprise, the director of the company got furious. I mean, he got really angry, really aggressive, started attacking us, saying that Christians were a bunch of arrogants who thought that they were better than other people. And, and I mean, it took us completely by surprise, you know, his level of anger. Even his wife, you know, tried to calm him down, say like, these are your guests, come down, what are you doing? They haven't even said anything, you know? And um, I didn't understand his anger until he got to the point where he asked this question. He said, well, if God is so good and so powerful, why did my father have to die so young and so fast? Apparently a few months before, his father, who he described as a good man, full of life, you know, a good father, a good husband, had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and it had died in less than two months. So his question was, why? Why did that happen? You know, I don't know what you would have told him. I, you know, it's it, hard to help someone to deal with a situation like that when at that time, I didn't even know how to deal with it myself. Uh, but that's a, a very common question. I think that uh, most of us, if you're an adult, and sadly, even if you are uh, a young person, have dealt with this question. Why did this have to happen? The problem is when we face these uh, painful, dark situations, what happens is that after the shock of the situation, what surfaces is your core beliefs about God. See, what you truly believe about who God is come to the surface, and then if it doesn't align with the situation that you're facing, then you get angry. You know, you start questioning it, like, is God really in control? Because my situations don't seem to prove that. It seems like it's not in control. We have all been there, and I don't know if this is any comfort to anyone, but we are not the first generation that asks this question. Actually, God's people has been facing this struggle you know, for centuries. And um, I wanted to show you how when they face the situation, what we get is an image from the Bible that shows us a God that is in control and powerful and a God that is good. And then I want to show you what is our usual reaction. See, in um, Isaiah chapter 40, um, uh, Isaiah, it's prophesizing to the people that are captive in Babylon. This hadn't happened. It's going to happen 160 years later. But Isaiah, it's, it's prophesizing, saying, 
this is what's going to happen after you were captive there for all these years. And look at what he says in, in verse 10. He says, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. What he's saying is, God is all powerful. He is governing. Even though you are captive, he's talking to the future people. They're not captive yet. It's like, even though you've been captive for all these years, he has not forgotten you and his promises will be fulfilled. He will come and free you. Okay? But then look at the next verse. Verse 11 says, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So on one hand, he's saying he's all powerful, he's governing, you know, he is in control of everything. And also he's a loving shepherd that cares for you and carries you when you need to be carried. It's a good God. And then if you continue reading that chapter 40, it's very interesting because what you're going to find is a lot of rhetorical questions that we find all over around in the Bible. You know, uh, Isaiah starts asking, who knows everything? Who controls everything? You know, who has the universe between his fingers? You know, it's rhetorical. The answer is God. And then he asks the rhetorical questions in the other direction. Who can understand him? Who knows his ways? You know, does he owe something to someone? No, the question is no. The answer is no. no. No one knows him. No one understands him. He doesn't know anything to anyone. He's powerful and his purposes are always fulfilled. And if you read that chapter, you might ask yourself, why does Isaiah have to keep reminding these people and repeating this affirmation of the goodness and power of God? And, and we find the answer in verse 27. And, and I want you to pay attention to this verse because this is where a lot of us find ourselves when we face hard things. Verse 27 says, Why, O Jacob, do you say and declare, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? You see what's happening here? Israel is complaining and questioning God. They're saying, what, you don't see me anymore? Are my ways hidden from you? You know, you can't find me. You don't know where I am. But even worse, the second part says, my right is disregarded by God. See, this is in clash, in contrast with who they think God is and who God is. They're saying, I have a right. You're supposed to do things for me. You know, I can demand from you that you do these things and you're not fulfilling your part. And this is what happens when adversity strikes. Our core beliefs about God come up and we start questioning God. Is he really in control? I mean, truly in control? Why am I facing these circumstances? And how does Isaiah respond? By saying, he's powerful and he loves you. He's in control. For a lot of people, that is an insufficient answer. If you are facing something very hard, and you come to a Christian friend and you tell him of your suffering and he says, don't worry, God is in control. You almost want to smack him. No? I mean, it sounds insulting. It's like, I know he's in control, you know? So, you know, sometimes people think that verses like that in the Bible are telling you, how do you dare questioning God? But it, that's not the case at all. I mean, uh, the best example of how the Bible is not that 
It's the book of Psalms. If you read the book of Psalms, you're going to find a lot of prayers there where people are doing both things. On one hand, read Psalms. You know, they're saying, where are you? Why, why don't you see me? Where is your face? Don't hide from me. And in the next verse, they're saying, but you are so loving and you're so kind and you're so great and you're so powerful. So the question to many of us is, how can they go together? So we really need to analyze what the Bible says to understand it. First of all, uh, I want you to see uh, the fundamental affirmations that the Bible makes in regards to this subject. Okay? There's two fundamental affirmations. The Bible gives us different perspectives uh, as the reason why we face adversity. Okay? The most prominent one, and it's the central part of the narrative of the Bible, is the fact that God creates human beings in his image, and he gives us something very important. See, number one in your notes says, God gave us free will, the capacity to choose between good and evil. Okay? When God created us, he gave us the capacity to make choices between the right thing and the wrong thing. Okay? The question was, what were human beings going to do? Are they going to submit to the wisdom and guidance of their God? Or are they going to define for themselves what is right and what is wrong? Um, we know how they chose. We know what the story tells us in the Bible, we chose wrong. And this is one of the ways in which the Bible explains the things that we face. The world that we're living is broken, it's dysfunctional, you know, because of the misuse of free will by human beings. So we suffer because of sin and the evil that entered the world with sin, you know, and because we live in a broken world. So I suffer because of the bad decisions that I make, And sometimes I suffer because of the bad decisions that other people make that cause me pain. And even though not all suffering comes from that, a lot more than you imagine comes from that. Okay? Now, the Bible makes another affirmation. Even though God gave us free will and we misused it and ruined everything, God is not biting his nails, sitting at the edge of his seat, wondering what's going to happen. I wonder what are they going to do next? You know, number two says God is sovereign and he's in control. You know, sovereign means he, he is in control and what he wants to happen will happen. See, sovereign, is, it's a term that we, we get from the royalty of the times on earth when kings and queens were kings and queens. You know, because today, you know, like the queen of England, the worst she can do is stop talking to you. You know, she can do anything to you. But there was a time when kings and queens could do whatever they wanted as they pleased. And that's what the Bible says about God. God sits at his throne and he do as he pleases. So he's in total control of the situation. He gave us free will. And even though, you know, we chose evil, we chose disobedience, that is not outside of his control. See, his train does not derail. The way that I see the universe is like God's train. God created this train that is going on the tracks and it's going in that direction and we're inside the train and it doesn't matter what mess do we make inside the train, the train will not derail. It will always arrive to where God wants it to go. Okay? Now, the tension between these two affirmations is very challenging. It's very complex. And it's one of those areas where we're really going to have to think and, and deal with it. 
Because I want you to remember, when you are in the middle of pain and tragedy, that is not the best moment to deal with your theology about suffering. Because the only thing you're going to be able to do is go to your core beliefs about who God is. And if, if you don't have the right idea or the right knowledge about who God is, you're going to question and complain and be angry. So you have to find a moment of calm when there are no storms to learn about the theology of suffering that the Bible teaches us. But if you are going through a very hard time right now, at the end of this sermon, I'm going to tell you what God does for us during those times, okay? So this tension between God's you know, sovereignty, uh, the, the free will of man, and the fact that he's good regardless of what happens, it's a tension that's been happening for centuries. You know, Christians have been arguing with other Christians about what the sovereignty of God means, and they are in disagreement, okay? There are different points of view, but it's important that you understand what those points of view are given to us by theologians and which ones should we truly put into our hearts. And remember, this is important because this is not just theology that we're talking about. This is the place where your heart is going to go in the middle of trouble, okay? So different points of view on God's sovereignty. See, there appear to be two extremes, you know, uh, in the theological world. On one end, we have men's free will. And on the other end, we have God's sovereignty, okay? And Christians have moved the belief between one or the other like a pendulum that moves from one to the other. There's a group that moves it all the way to one side, and there's another group that moves it all the way to one side, and there's points of view that go in between, and we're going to see how the pendulum should really be. But let's understand first the two extremes. There's a group of theologians, of scholars, that move the pendulum completely towards God's sovereignty. So what they do is they deny the possibility that humans have free will. What this results is this view. God is sovereign and the cause of absolutely everything that happens. That's a group of scholars. They think he is the cause of everything. They call it omni-causality. Toda causa, all cause. Okay? Now, if you see God in this way, your vision of God is kind of like, imagine Shakespeare writing Hamlet. They think of God like an author writing a screenplay that he wrote before the beginning of time. He, he wrote all the script and all he did was create, you know, human beings to act out the play. Okay, this is, this is the way that they see it. Okay, so according to these people, you know, God has a plan that is going to be fulfilled by decree because he pre-growed the script. But if you have an analytical mind, two problems are going to pop immediately. The first one is what does this say about God in relationship to evil? See, problem number one, how can God determine all things and not be responsible for evil? If he pre-growed in a script everything I was going to say and do, then everything that I've done in my life that was wrong, it's his fault because he wrote the script for me. Theologians have a very hard time explaining that one, okay? But there's another problem in relationship to free will and humankind. Problem number two says, if God determines all our actions, we don't really have free will. 
You know, if it's already pre-written everything I'm going to do, I'm not really choosing. I'm just playing the play. The thing is, the scriptures are very clear showing us that God is not responsible for our actions and that we do have free will. Uh, look at James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Do you see where everything starts in your, in your thought life, in your thinking life? It says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So God is not responsible for my abuse of the freedom or free will that he gave me, and he did not determine or try to convince me in the way that I would do the wrong things. It was my decision, and this is something that you can attest to. Have you ever faced choices between good you know, and, and, and evil or right and wrong, and sometimes you chose right and sometimes you chose wrong? So it was your decision. You know you had the choice, and you chose right or wrong. And this is why many Christians, other scholars, move the pendulum all the way to the free will of men. And what they say is this, God limits his knowledge and power to honor humans' free will. See, this group of scholars say that God self-limits himself in knowledge. That means he doesn't intrude into your, he your head, your, your, your thoughts. You know, he doesn't want to know what you're about to do. Huh? And, and, and he limits his power. He's not going to make you do things because he's honoring your free will. So if you have this vision of God, then God is not like an author. It's not like Shakespeare. He's more like a master chess player. You know, that he's, he's playing this chess game with us and he has no idea what we're going to move next. But he's so wise that he's always going to outmaneuver us. So his purposes will be fulfilled because he will outmaneuver us in the match, okay? Now, these theologians don't mean to say that God is not all-powerful and that he doesn't possess all knowledge. They're saying that he himself limits those, that power and knowledge so that we will honor your freedom. But if you think about that, then a problem is also going to arise. Problem says, how can we be sure his purposes will be fulfilled. You know, if, if, if he doesn't know what we're going to move, he might be very good at playing chess, but he has no idea what all of us are going to move. And how does he know, let alone him, how do we know his purposes will be fulfilled? But in this regard, the scriptures are also very clear to talk about God's purposes and his sovereignty. Look at what Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11 says. It says, the Lord foils the plans of the nations, he thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generation. So the Bible does not allow you to think that we are puppets in a play, but also it doesn't give you space to think that we have such freedom that we can threaten the plans of God for this world. It stops the pendulum right in the middle. Okay, uh, and, and, and even though you can find certain passages that seem to support one side or the other, the truth is the Bible always stops it in the middle. And this 
is very confusing. How can he be sovereign and we can be free? I think that one of the causes um, of the confusion, it's our understanding of what freedom means. Our idea of freedom can be very confused and then cause a lot of problems in your Christian life. See, what happened after the Enlightenment is that some atheist philosophers came up with ideas and some statements that confused a lot of Christians. There was this guy called Edmund Husserl who started uh, a school of thought called uh, the uh, personalism. And, and he was trying to identify what made different uh, human beings from the rest of the living creatures. And he concluded that the difference was what he called intentionality. That means the fact that we are self-aware beings that uh, are free. And, but since we're self-aware, we can intentionally do certain things to accomplish things that we want to accomplish, okay? I'm sure you've never heard of Husserl, but for sure you have heard of his star student, who was Jean-Paul Sartre. Have you heard of him? Well, following the studies of his teacher, Sartre said this. He said, human freedom is the strongest argument against the existence of God. His logic was, if we are free, then God cannot exist. Because God's supposed to be sovereign. And if God exists, then we cannot be free. The true two extremes. Right? Either he exists and we're not free, or he doesn't exist and we're really free. The error in his logic was his understanding of freedom. See, he wrote this. He said, unless freedom is elevated to the level of autonomy, that freedom is not real. So we have to elevate freedom to the level of autonomy, and then we're free. So the question is, what does autonomy mean? You know what auto means, like in the word automobile, self moves. You know, a car moves by itself, unless it runs out of gas and then you have to push it, you know, but you know, it's automobile. Well, autonomous means self-law. Nomus means law. It means self-legislated being, self-ruled, self governed. An autonomous being is a being that writes the laws of behavior for himself. See, and the problem with that is that nowhere in the Bible does it say that God gave us autonomy. It is actually the opposite. A creature that behaves with autonomy is a creature that is rebelling to be in submission to his God. That is not what God gave us. Do you know where we find the introduction to free will in the Bible, to human beings? We find it in the book of Genesis when God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You remember what he told them or told him because Eve wasn't even there yet? You know, did he say to Adam, you can do whatever you want, eat from whatever tree and do as you please? Is that what he said? You're, have you read Genesis? Is that what he said? It's not a trick question. That is not what he said. 
This is what he said, Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded, remember that word, commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God was giving him free will, the choice to choose between things, but he was giving him commandments, laws. You can eat all this, but not this one, which means you are not autonomous. There's a law. And you have to follow it, but you have free will. You can choose between one or the other. Their freedom had boundaries, and the boundaries were the law. Having free will doesn't mean that you don't obey commandments. See, if I had had the chance to talk to Jean Paul Sartre, I would have asked him, are you free in your country? Think about it. Are you free in this country? Not a trick question. Are you free? Are you free or not? What are you celebrating tomorrow? Freedom. So you are free in this country. You know, you, you can choose the line of work. You can choose what you want to study. You can choose where you want to live. You can choose if you want to leave the country. There are countries where you cannot choose those things. The government doesn't let you. You have to ask permission for everything. And most of the time they say no. Okay? So you have freedom. Are you autonomous? Can you go into the bank on Tuesday and take all their money and go to your house with it? Can you kill someone if you don't like them? Can you stop paying taxes? Well, that one, yes. No, but, uh, <laughs> nah, you can't. <laughs> what I'm saying is, see, if you want to live in the United States, you have free will, but you have to obey their law. Right? If you want to live in this universe, you have free will. But you have to obey God's law. It's his universe with his laws. Okay? So, what does it mean then that God is sovereign in a fallen world as the one that we're living? Well, it means two things. Number one, there are things that happen in the world that God doesn't want. All those horrible things that you see in the news that people do to other people, to children, to women... You know, the atrocities that we're seeing that are happening in Europe. God doesn't want that to happen. This is why when we pray, we say, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven it does. And on earth it doesn't. So there are things that happen here that God doesn't want. But number two, God uses everything for the fulfillment of his plan. So the fact that there's pain, that there's evil happening in our lives doesn't mean that this surprises God or that it is out of his control. And, and one of the narratives, the stories in the Bible where you can see better explain the tension between these two things, it's in a story that we know very well. I hope you all know it very well because I don't have time to read the whole story. It's the story of Joseph in the Genesis. Now, Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob. And if you Remember the story, if you know it, I'll tell you briefly what happened. Joseph had this son, I'm sorry, Jacob had this son, the, the two J's confuse me. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them was Joseph, and he was his favorite son. He was very open about his favoritism, so his brothers hated him, okay? So they plot to kill him, you know, in the last minute, one of them intervenes, and instead of killing him, they sell him as a slave. You know, the merchants drag him all the way to Egypt. 
They sell him in the market of slaves, and this guy called Potiphar buys him. And Potiphar, you know, he, he, he starts trusting him, he starts prospering in the house of Potiphar until the wife of Potiphar tries to seduce him. You know, and since he refuses, she accuses him of trying to rape her, and they throw him unjustly in jail. He's abandoned in jail, forgotten, but by people that he helps in jail for years. But it's something very interesting that all through all these things, the Bible repeats over and over, but he never abandons his faith and God was with him. So he prospers even in these terrible circumstances. He starts doing better and then something horrible happens again and down he goes again. So he ends up in jail. By circumstances, I don't have time to explain, read the stories very good. He ends up getting out of jail becoming an advisor to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And, and, and then because of his wisdom and, and, and his good management skills, he saves the land from, from starving to death practically. And he's named like the prime minister of Egypt. You know, they have a lot of food stored for seven years. And then when there's no food for another seven, they have enough food. So the countries around them find out that Egypt has food. So they start sending people to buy food from them And who's not going to appear at his door asking for food? Then his brothers who sold him into slavery. You know, he, Joseph, is the one personally managing the stuff. So they have to come and ask him, but they don't recognize him. He speaks in Egyptian, dressed like an Egyptian, and walks like an Egyptian, you know. So, so they, they don't know who he is. And, I mean, you know, at the end of that part of the story, he reveals himself to them. He first plays some tricks to them that, that they really deserve. But at the end, he says, it's me, Joseph. Ah, they all cry. They, he sends them back home and bring the father and all the family. So 70 people move into Egypt. And the Pharaoh likes them very much. So they, he gives them a very nice piece of land. And, and, and it seems like the story was going to end there. But then Jacob dies. You know, and, and all the brothers, you know, say, uh-oh. You know, let's see if now that our father is dead, who was defending us, He's not going to take revenge on us. So they come up with a plan. They sent him a message saying, before Jacob died, he left, said, please don't be cruel to your brothers. You know, <laughs> nobody knows if that's what happened, but that's what they said. So amazingly enough, when, when, when Joseph receives this message, he starts crying. He starts sobbing. His, his heart breaks. And he tells the messenger, bring my brothers to my presence. So the messenger goes, and I just want to imagine how their knees must have trembled when the messenger came and says, but he says to go tell him yourself, you know, <laughs> like come to his presence. So they come to him, and what they do is all of them throw themselves to the floor. And this is what happens. Genesis 50, uh, starting in verse 18, they said to him, behold, we are your servants. Doesn't this remind you of the prodigal son? You know, now I'm your servant. Now I'm your slave. Don't treat me like your son. Treat me like a slave, but please treat me, you know? And, and that's what they're saying. Behold, we are your servants. But listen to the words of Joseph. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? Do you see what Joseph is saying? Joseph is saying, I have the power. I'm the second in command. I have free will. And if I wanted, I could kill you. But am I God? 
Am I in God's place? Am I one that can make that choice? I have free will, not autonomy. His laws prevail. I am not God. He never lost sight of who is sovereign and who isn't. And we're not. God is. But then listen to the next verse. This, As for you, you meant evil against me. You used your free will and you used it wrong. You wanted to hurt me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to give many people a life. So see, there it is. We mean things for evil. You know, many of us do the wrong things, but God means them. His intention is for good. And, and, and this is the crucial part that you need to get from this story. God used everything that happened in order to save a lot of people. And when Joseph said he used it to, to save a lot of people, he didn't realize the amount of people he was talking about. Because those 70 will become 2 million that will become all the tribes of Israel where Jesus is going to be born and save all of us. So one man obeying God in the face of adversity, never abandoning his faith, and remembering who is sovereign and doing the right thing helps God fulfill his plans on earth. This is how he does it. But tell me this. Who was responsible for all the pain that Joseph suffered? Brothers, who was working behind the scene to redeem that situation? God. See, a lot of people want to use that story to move the pendulum to one end or the other. But the Bible doesn't allow you. It stops it in the middle. It says, yes, you have free will. And yes, he's sovereign. And it's hard to understand because it's a paradox. You know what a paradox is? It's not a contradiction. A paradox is a statement that appears to be self-contradictory but contains such profound truths that can they both be truth even if your limited mind does not understand them. God is way too big, way too powerful, way too wise for us to even comprehend how he rules this world. And this is not mental laziness. It's called humility. He's, he's way too large. But the Bible pushes us to affirm in our hearts with faith that whatever happens, God is sovereign and is good. And this is what I will hope that you would keep in mind. There was a moment in history when the free will misused by human beings clashed completely head to head against God's sovereignty. You know when that happened? At the cross. At the cross. See, the cross is the most evil thing that human beings could possibly do. And God used it to do the greatest good ever when they clashed together. See, the, the, the gospel, the story of the Bible, is God solving the problem of evil behavior of human beings at the cross. Now, the Bible will not give you the answer of why things happen, but he does tell us what God is doing about it in the gospel. See, in the gospel, and this is, I mean, just think about it. it at the cross, we find Shakespeare writing himself inside the play 
to carry the burden, the pain, the suffering, the anger of God for all the misuse of our free will. And by dying in the cross and then his resurrection, assuring us a pretended world. In the middle of our battles, it is just natural that we go, why God? Why is this happening to me? The Bible is never going to give you an answer as for why a specific thing happens in your life. But the cross shows us what the answer cannot be. The answer cannot be because God doesn't care. Because he's outside of his control. Because would a God that doesn't care would do what he did at the cross for you and me? See, it shows us that it's not this distant, authoritarian, uncaring God that some people think. It's a loving God that tells us that he's caring our abuse of freedom in the cross, receiving the consequences, and not, and not just suffering for you, but with you, so that he can identify with you, with, with your pain, with your suffering. See, have you ever been unfairly accused of something, you had to pay consequences for something that you didn't do? Look at the cross. False witnesses, illegal trials, innocent men. What, what, why did Pontius Pilate wash his hands? He knew he was innocent. Have you been betrayed and abandoned by your best friends? Look at the cross. All his friends in this darkest hour, his best friend denied him three times. Are you suffering physically? Look at the cross. Most painful way man has invented to execute a person, the cross. Have you lost a loved one? Look at the cross. The image of a father witnessing his son dying for you and for me. Or maybe sometimes you have felt that God's not paying attention to you. You're praying and he doesn't listen. He has forsaken you. Look at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a mystery, the cross, because God incarnate becomes at the cross, God abandoned by God so that he could identify with your pain and my pain. So it doesn't answer why, but it does tell us what the answer is not. It's not because he doesn't care. It's not because it's out of control. He loves you. I don't know. Um, in what area of your life the cross and the resurrection of Jesus will speak to today. Uh, we all go through seasons of life where we struggle with this. I don't know what kind of resurrection can God bring into your circumstances. I don't even know <laughs> what kind of resurrection he will bring to my circumstances. So I cannot possibly know what he will bring to yours. But Thanks to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I can walk firmly knowing with, with faith and hope 
that God is in control and He's good all the time. He loves you and He's there for you. I don't know where you are today. If you're in the middle of pain and suffering and you're tired because of all the things that you've been carrying with yourself, just remember the promise that Jesus gave us in Matthew 11. Listen to his words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, that is the promise. You, you're not going to find the answer to why. But if you come to him, if you pour your heart out to him in the midst of these circumstances, you allow him to heal your heart and give you rest. And that's what we need. Rest. Let's pray. Father, um, I don't think that we can ever thank you enough for what you did to cross for us. I know that many of us are carrying very heavy burdens. And I know from experience, Father, that in the darkest moments, it's very hard to deal with this, with all this information, with all this knowledge, with all these things. But I thank you, Father, that in your Bible, you did not tell us, come to me and you'll understand. You said, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. So I'm praying for all my brothers and sisters that are suffering in this moment, that you will give us rest for our souls. And for all those that a storm is coming, that you will help them remember that you are in control and you are a loving shepherd that will carry them through. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name.